as far as I know, the German city of Aachen doesn't appear on any tourist uh, um, uh, paths. Uh, but it's one of the most amazing collection of uh, medieval European architecture and history you'll find anywhere. And one of the things that I found most striking when I visited was the octagon where uh, Charlemagne had his throne and his headquarters, and where until, excuse me, the year 1531, on his throne, all the German kings were, were coronated. And uh, as you stand sort of in, in the uh, entryway in the lower level and you look up, you see this, this throne, and it really is spectacular. It looks like it's, it's gold and it's kind of shimmering in the light. It's a, it's a brilliant thing to see. And uh, the, the building itself is, I mean, it's just magnificent. And if you're on a tour and they take you around, you get to go up to where that throne is. And, you know, they probably let you sit on it. I don't know. Um, uh, it's, it's a magnificent thing. And as you get closer to it, you realize, hey, it's actually white. It's not made of gold at all, but the way the light comes in, it illuminates it so that it looks magnificent from below, which is where the people, if they ever saw it, that's how they would have seen it. And then you realize, hang on, what is that on the side? And there's a child's game scratched into the tiles. And it turns out somebody has taken to construct this magnificent throne of Charlemagne and all the princes of, of Germany, They've taken floor tiles and cobbled them together with brass clips to make something in the shape of a chair. And as you stand there, you're, you're kind of taken aback and you, you think it's, it's all an illusion. And you begin to wonder, is all power merely an illusion? And if it is, people have to work really hard to maintain that illusion. And so when we talk about someone like Herod the Great, he has to use the sword to generate that illusion of power. He has to kill people to hang on to his power. And so he kills his wives, even the one that he loved. Uh, he kills his sons, including the father of Herod Agrippa, the one who features in this story. It's hard to imagine a king who could survive without constantly reasserting his power, because to lose it is to become insecure. And this draws us into the, uh, the person of Herod, in Acts chapter 12. And the one thing that uh, Luke wants to tell us from the very beginning is that to be sovereign is to be lord over life and death. To be sovereign is to be lord over life and death. And Herod is the sovereign king of Israel. He kills at will, and so James dies. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And now Peter is about to die. He's going to be next. Now Herod is secure in his position. Uh, not all of power is an illusion. It helps if you can generate that, but not all of power is an illusion, and Herod is incredibly secure in his position. First of all, he's a friend of the emperor. Caligula was so grateful for the help that Herod gave him that he presented him with a golden chain. Uh, Herod had been imprisoned in Rome in a chain, and Caligula fashioned a chain that weighed the same amount in solid gold and presented it to him as a gift. That's how much he esteemed him. And what did uh, Herod do with that? Well, he presented it at the temple, and that's going to score points among the Jewish people, isn't it? That he has given this solid gold, um, valuable thing to the temple itself. And so Herod was, and I'm not going to have a go at the Latin of this phrase, but he was officially declared to be a friend of Caesar. Pilate knew he wasn't a friend of Caesar, but Herod sure was. Not only that, Herod had helped his childhood friend Claudius get to the throne after Caligula, and the emperor returned the favor. So now Herod has this kingship, and he is secure on his throne. 
But it's, there's more than that because what, what about the people? Herod, who is the last of the Hasmoneans through his uh, grandmother, has donated this gold chain to the temple. And the people like that. And he also participates in temple activities. So when ritual and, and festivals come along, Herod jumps right in and he participates in all this. And the people would have seen that and would have celebrated it. And now he's further solidifying his popularity because he saw the response when he killed James. It was a good thing in terms of PR. And he's going up in the polls. And so he's arrested Peter. And he's going to do the same thing to him. And so in this way, Herod is a growing threat to the church. But humanly speaking, this guy's not going anywhere. His grandfather had reigned from 37 to 4 BC, that is 33 years. Would this Herod reign as long? He was politically secure. He's climbing in the polls. He was a sort of king that was so popular that the kings in the areas around him wanted to become his friends his glow would shed a positive light on them, and they wanted to be aligned with him. He was incredibly secure. He had maximum security in his reign. And to be sovereign is to be lord over life and death, and that's Herod's situation. My second point is this. To be sovereign is to be lord over life and death, Verses 5 to 11, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter in verse 4 is said to be in prison. There are four squads of so four soldiers. Uh, you've heard us read it twice, so you know what's going on here. Uh, there's going to be a show trial before the Passover, and then he's going to die. Of course, Jesus had been tried and put to death by a Herod to do with the Passover. And so the, the smell of death hangs heavy over this story. It seems inevitable. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains with guards at the door. There are sentries at the uh, exit points. Peter is extra secure. One might say that this is maximum security. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. Now, I know some of you can't sleep the night before an exam or perhaps preaching a sermon, but Peter in the hours before his execution is asleep. My mind went to Jesus in the storm. It never occurred to me that your mind would be thinking of Jonah in the storm. What does it mean that he's uh, sleeping? And what is the church doing? Well, we've already been told. Uh, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They are praying. They are praying earnestly. They are praying for Peter. The people of God, the church, have gathered together in an impossible situation to pray. Now, they hadn't given up because they thought God was unable to rescue in the face of James's death. Why pray? Did God show himself unable to save when it came to James? Why do you think he's going to do it for Peter? What hope do you have? For that matter, does God still care for the church in Jerusalem? The gospel went out to the Gentiles in chapter 11. Maybe God's plans have moved on. Do these prayers coincide with God's purposes? But we know that God hears their prayers. The Passover bell has been ringing. And the point of the Passover is that it precedes the Exodus, when God forms his new people and delivers them. This new Exodus will now play out in Peter's experience. In verse 7, it says that uh, 
Peter is struck by the angel of the Lord. Now, it's rarely a good thing to be struck by the angel of the Lord, but in this case, it has a quickening effect. And the angel says, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Quick, because that's the way you eat the Passover. Um, they're commemorating the, the rescue from Egypt, and so there's a way that you eat it. There's a way that you dress. The, the whole thing is done a certain way as though you are leaving in haste to commemorate that moment when they did uh, leave in haste. He says, quick, get up. And then he says, put on your clothes and your sandals. Put on your, your traveling clothes, as it were, because this is a Passover reality. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. These are all Exodus activities or Passover activities, I should say, as this is working itself out. So in verse 7, the chains fall off. In verse 10, as this new exodus takes place, they pass the first and second guards and they come to the iron gate leading to the city and it opens for them by itself. If you're looking at it in Greek, it's automate. Uh, we might say this is the first automatic door. Everything is opening in front of Peter as God rescues him. In fact, when we get to verse 12, we'll discover that the only door that will not open to him that night not the gate of the prison, not the gate of the city, but the door of the church is the only one that's closed to him. If I were preaching a different sermon, I might say, do we sometimes fail to welcome those into our gathering where God is in the very business of rescuing that person? Herod kills who he wants on his terms, in his time, but not Peter. Another king sits on another throne Jesus is sovereign over life and death, so Herod cannot kill Peter. God has rescued him. We'll explore some of the details next week as we uh, look at that rescue. Um, let's drop down to verse 13. In the morning, sorry, 18. Yes, 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Why does Luke want you to know this? Because he wants you to know that to be sovereign is to be Lord over life and death. These guards had been appointed by Herod for a purpose. Herod was not to be trifled with. He was the unassailable master of Israel. And failing to serve him, at least in this case, results in death. And if nothing else, this is vital to maintain the illusion. Herod sits on the throne, he is the ruler, and he kills at will, just not Peter. And so my fourth point, verse 19 and following, is that to be sovereign is to be Lord over life and death. As we read about the death of Herod, there are just a few things I want to note. I suppose it has to do with the fact that he was eaten by worms. Because he has been struck by the angel of the Lord. Being struck by the angel of the Lord is rarely a good thing. And here we read that Herod, verse 23, was struck by an angel of the Lord and he was eaten by worms and died. I think that it's significant that uh, Luke frames it that way or presents it that way. We know from history that Josephus, uh, Josephus tells us, for example, that Herod was eaten by worms. He talks about it being the, the most gruesome death, the most unpleasant death. Uh, sounds like it to me. But there's something else I think Luke is trying to show us with this. Remember back to Peter's first sermon 
in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and it hinges on Psalm 16, verse 10. Peter recites it, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The king that God has put on the throne will not see decay. Paul preaches his first sermon in Acts 13, so chapter 12 is in a sense a transition to the, the Paul part of the book of Acts. And in his first sermon, he preaches, chapter 13, verse 35, the hinge point of that sermon is Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not let your Holy One see decay. So what Luke is trying to show us in, I think, a fairly gruesome fashion is that there is a king who dies but does not see decay. There is a king who dies but not see decay. And up against that is a king who, well, he's dead before he even dies. He sees decay. He's eaten by worms before he's even dead. His throne, his rule, his authority is an illusion. There's nothing to it in God's plan and purposes because Jesus is the rightful occupant of the throne of God's kingdom. And even death cannot hold him down. Even death has no effect on him. To be sovereign is to be Lord over life and death. And that's who our King Jesus is, the sovereign king, the one that we serve. So I guess the question is, well, where do you find your security? Is it in places and events? They don't prove themselves to be all that secure. Is it in people? Well, they too come undone. Only in Jesus do we find the security to live rightly before him and to serve him with courage and confidence. The chapter ends in verse 24 saying, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. The word of God continued to increase and spread. What promises do you cling to? What if the only guarantee in this life is that the word of God will increase and spread? Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would please fashion us into people who trust in you, people who boldly declare the name of the risen King and bring light into darkness. Please help us find our security in you so that we can properly evaluate what is true and real and valuable in this life and in the life to come. For Jesus' sake, amen.